Now join me as I read the passage on which today's teaching is based. It comes from Esther chapter 7. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And as they were drinking wine on that second day, the king asked, again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half of the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen, answer, Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A gallows 75 feet high stands by Haman's house. He had it made for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. This is God's word. The word Advent means arrival. And if you're new or visiting, it's the season where Christians look ahead to the promise of the return of Jesus by observing the birth of Jesus. They look forward by looking back. And we've been looking at the book of Esther because Esther teaches us that God is constantly at work, even though he seems absent. He's constantly working, even though he's seemingly silent. And Esther teaches us then how to live, how to respond as Christians with power and wealth and status. Esther, he uses, she uses her talents, she uses her gifts, and she becomes queen of the most powerful empire to date. Even though she hides her identity, she hides her culture, and she adapts to culture, the culture of the Persian Empire. Critics and scholars, they say she sold out. She, she gave in, she sacrificed her, her values, her beliefs, and she slept with a man simply because of his wealth and his power, uh, and, and, uh, and later marries him because of his wealth and power. She changes the way she looks and eats and dresses. But there's this conspiracy against her people. Haman, the right-hand man of, uh, of Xerxes, the king, an enemy to the Jews, comes up with an idea to systematically wipe out all the Jews, plunder all the Jews in the empire, and he gets the approval of the king. And when this news reaches Esther, she realizes that she is in the perfect position. She is the queen at the perfect time to be God's instrument of salvation for her people, to stop this conspiracy, but it might cost her her life. And so Esther risks her life 
by approaching the king and invites Xerxes, the king, and Haman to a banquet where she reveals her identity. Now, you got to know that banquets in these ancient times, they were very intimate. To throw a banquet, what are you saying? What are you doing? You're saying, uh, number one, you're making yourself vulnerable. But the banquet says, you know, we haven't been together in a while. We haven't been together in 30 days, Esther says. Let's rekindle our relationship. Let's rekindle our love. Let's be intimate again. What's the meaning of Christmas for us today? One, it means we're responding in humility. Two, we're fighting against our pride. And three, we're acknowledging the reversals that we're called to in our lives. We're responding in humility, fighting against pride, acknowledging reversals. First, uh, humility. We're responding in humility. Esther, she carefully places her words together because she's about to reveal herself, her true identity. And doing so, she's going to risk her status, risk her wealth, risk her security. She's risking her life. By revealing herself, she's saying their lives are at stake. Their lives are at stake because, because I'm identifying with them. What she's saying is my life is just as much at stake. Haman is convinced. Haman has manipulated the king to decree death for all of my people, for all the Jews, for all of God's people. They're going to all be destroyed on a single day. The king has gave Haman, given Haman his, his signet ring, which means that Haman had full executive authority to carry out anything that he wanted to do. You know what that means? Haman had the approval of the king. Haman had all the power of the king. His word is the word of the king. And so Esther is appealing against the king's final word, against his decree, against the trust of the palace, against his wisdom. And so she is undermining the power of the king. Esther's own life is at stake. That's why she's so careful in placing her words together. Verses one to two, you see the king, you see Xerxes, he adores Esther. And he says, what is your petition? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. What is your petition? What is your request? In other words, I will do anything at any cost to make you happy. And Esther responds in verse three, if I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty. Notice, she doesn't demand anything from the king. She doesn't act entitled. She doesn't assert her authority. She doesn't assert her power. Rather, she appeals to the king. She petitions the king. She says, you selected me. You chose me. And if I'm really that chosen person, if I'm really your chosen love, then that means that I have your honor and I have your heart. Remember, both Esther and Haman were selected. Haman was a hired person. He was selected. He was chosen. So neither of them want to insult the wisdom of the king. So Esther says, if I have found favor with you. She's saying, Haman has your trust. He may have your trust, but I have your heart. I have your favor. In other words, what she's saying is, my life is at stake and my heart is at stake. And if I have your heart, that means your life is at stake. If I'm gone, that means you're gone. If I die, it means you die. Your heart, your life are at stake too. The petition and the request goes like this, verse three and four. Grant me my life. In other words, my life is in danger. That's the petition. Spare 
my people. That's the request. Now think about this. If the queen has the heart of the king, then any act against the queen is an act against the king. Any violence or conspiracy against the queen is a direct violence and conspiracy against the king. And so Xerxes responds, verse five, who would do this? Who would do such a thing? In verse six, Esther exposes this vile Haman, she says. And she references this plan and what that will do to the king's legacy and what that will do to her people. And she reveals that he'd be exploiting the poor She'd be, he'd be exploiting the poor through conspiracy and treachery. She says, you know, I would have kept this quiet. I have kept this quiet. But this justifies disturbing you because I am your treasure. I am your treasure. And this is going to cost my life and my happiness. And if it costs me my life and my happiness, it's going to cost you your life and your happiness as well. Up until this point, you got to know, the king didn't realize the consequence of the agreement that he made with Haman. Now it's all coming together. He's starting to make the connection. And when he does, he gets up and he leaves angrily. Verses six and seven, and he seals, that's, this seals the deal for Haman. Haman knows now his life is over. What do we learn? The way up is down. Greatness comes through sacrifice. Greatness comes through giving. Greatness comes through surrender. Esther's appeal, she became great because she lowered herself. She became great because she absorbed the pain and the suffering of her people. Haman was brought down because why? Because he tried to become great on his own. When you try to go up on your own, you end up falling down. You end up being brought down. But if you really want to become great, if you really uh, want to go up, the way up is on your knees. You have to kneel. You have to kneel before the king. Haman tried to become great on his own by crushing and stepping all over other people. But the gospel teaches that true greatness is born inside humility. That's the meaning of Christmas. Greatness born in humility, greatness born in fragility. Jesus Christ was born as a baby. That means he was vulnerable. That means he was killable. He wasn't born on the throne. He was born in a manger. That means he was born through poverty and in poverty. He is the ultimate savior of his people. And yet he was born in weakness. Esther doesn't assert herself. She comes to the king in a posture of weakness, in a posture of humility. How do you live? How do you live? You're a person with wealth and status and power. How do you live? You got to look at the transformation of Esther because the transformation of Esther is our application, how we are transformed into humility. The first half of the book, Esther is completely swept away by the world's values, but later on she begins to identify with her people and their suffering and their poverty and their losses, the plundering, the treachery, the conspiracy. And she says, everything that I've been given, my beauty that's been given to me, the social skills that I've acquired over the years, it must be for this reason. It must be for this purpose. Christmas is what? Christmas is about a greater high king, Jesus Christ, a greater beauty, who came down, lowered himself because why? He identified with his people. He identified with their spiritual poverty. He identified with their weakness, their inability, their suffering. John chapter one, he came to that which was his own. 
And he took on the cross. He took the suffering that we deserved, not at the risk of his life, but the cost of his life. Jesus is a king that we can go to this Christmas because he is the greater Esther, a greater mediator on behalf of his people, the greatest mediator, the greatest priestly mediator. To be a Christian means what? I am sentenced to death. My life is over. But Jesus Christ, my Savior, has sacrificed his life for me, not because I earned it, not because I deserved it, but because I am the king's treasure. You can trust the goodness of the king. And that should humble us. That should humble you. The second point is you gotta fight against your pride. Esther came down, but Haman was brought down. Verses five to eight, you have Xerxes, the king. He's caught in a bind. He's overwhelmed by the realization that on one hand, he had no idea who his wife was. He had no idea who Esther was. He had no idea who Esther really was, a Jew. On the other hand, he had no idea who Haman really was, this evil, vile person. And so he's angry, he's enraged, gets up and leaves. But Haman, he still craves power. He still craves the approval of the king and he's lost it. And now he knows his life is over. But his reaction is just over the top. What does he do? Verse seven, he stays behind. He wants to beg Esther for her life. Now, most scholars, most commentators, they're gonna point out to you that the etiquette regarding being in with the king's harem is very, very strict. It's very limited. You have lots of boundaries. So it would have been very difficult for Haman to even talk with Esther without offending the king. He couldn't even get near her. But in verses seven to eight, Haman stays and is alone with the queen. You would never be caught alone with a member of the king's harem, let alone the queen. That's the pride of Haman. You know what pride says? Pride says the same law that applies to everyone else doesn't apply to me. I'm above the law. I'm the exception to the law. Pride makes you deaf to the law. Pride makes you deaf to the king. You ever see uh, David Frost? You probably didn't. David Frost's interviews with President Nixon after he resigned, after his uh, conspiracy, it was, it was revealed. Nixon, President Nixon said this, when the president does it, then it must not be illegal. When the president does it, then it must not be illegal. What happens is you lose self-control, you lose a sense of the law, you lose your good judgment. Pride makes you deaf, but it makes you blind to yourself and your weaknesses. And now Haman, he is just over the top. He's trying to save himself, last ditch effort. He wants to make it right on his own. He wants to clear his name. He wants to do anything he can to clear his name, to justify himself. That's pride. That's what pride does. Pride makes you desperate. Pride makes you blind. Pride makes you deaf. Eventually they cover his face. Pride makes you silenced. It makes you dumb. And now you have Haman trying to save himself, it, uh, you know, he's, he's desperate in his attempts. He sacrifices his dignity, sacrifices all propriety 
loses himself, pride says what? I need to increase my potential, I need to increase my options, and I need to increase my worth. What do I do? By building wealth, by building power. That's why you crave wealth and, and crave power and crave status and crave the approval of others. And you do this by groveling before some people who are kingly to you, and you do it by stepping over other people who are lower than you. That's what happens. And so you end up compromising your values and your relationships. And what happens? When you compromise your values and your relationships, you end up decreasing your power. Uh, potential, decreasing your options, decreasing your worth. For Haman, it's the end of his life. Verse eight, they cover his face. Why? Ancient cultures, they acted out their sentiments. To see someone's face was a sign of intimacy. You see it all over in the Psalms. To see someone's face is a sign of intimacy. It means we're close. You're in my life. You're in my inner circle. You're saying to see you, to know you, that means I'm close to you. You are in. When you cover someone's face, you say, get away from me. What are you saying? I don't want to see you. I don't want to know you. I want to forget you. You are out of my life. You are cursed. It's like saying, get out of my face. Christmas is about Jesus Christ, who had the ultimate intimacy. The son of the high king. The son of God, the father. He, there's no inner circle more in than what Jesus was in. But he came to the world who rejected him. And on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, the Father has rejected me. God himself has rejected me. God has turned his face away. I'm covered. I cannot see his face. I'm no longer seen. I'm no longer known. I have been forsaken. I am out of the circle. I am cursed. Christmas is about the greater Esther who becomes, who becomes the greater Haman on the cross to save his people, to save God's treasure. I have lost the Father. That means I've lost myself. I've lost my life. My life is over. And yet, even as he was suffering on the cross, do you know what he was doing? He was praying. He was praying for his people. Father, forgive them, he said. Look at the poise of Jesus. Always even though his life and his world, everything internally, he was imploding, falling apart, there is still a trust in the Lord. There is still poise that even though God was ultimately silent, truly absent from him, he knew that God would be present. And he surrendered to that. Unlike Haman, Jesus didn't die because he was selfish. He didn't die because he was proud. He died because he was humble. That means Christmas is about the vulnerability of Jesus who made us strong. It's about the forsakenness of Jesus so that we could be intimate and call God our Father. Christmas is about the death of self-justification the death of our ego, the death, the death of our craving, the approval of other people, the death of pride. Lastly, Christmas is about acknowledging the little reversals in our lives because of the ultimate reversal that we behold. Haman was so evil, people, the instant they had the chance, they didn't hesitate to give him a taste of his own evil. Verses nine to 10, they decided to hang him on the gallows, the gallows that were actually intended for Mordecai. The Hebrew word for gallows 
is the word eats. It actually means tree, but the word is often used to represent the judgment of God. There are many words for tree in the Bible, right? But this specific word is often used to represent sin, God's judgment against sin. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. To be placed on a tree, to be stuck on a tree means you are cursed. And the Greek counterpart to that word eights is cross. Now think about this. When Haman was pierced, when he was impaled on that tree, evil died on that tree. It was a sort of poetic justice, the greatest reversal in this narrative in the book of Esther. Why? Because the Bible's filled with great reversals. In 1 Samuel, you have David. When David defeated Goliath, how did he kill Goliath? What he did was he approached Goliath, took Goliath's own sword, the sword that was intended to kill David, and he used it against Goliath. In the same way, the death of Haman was by the very weapon that he intended against others, that he intended against God's people. Haman's greatest strength, his greatest power, the source of his glory was used against him. And this reversal brought redemption to Esther's people, to God's people. And if that reversal did it for Esther's people, God's people then, what does it do for us? What does it do about us, God's people now? Look at Jesus Christ. He was hung on the cross. He was hung on the tree. The ultimate example of the curse. In Gethsemane, Jesus Christ petitions the ultimate king on behalf of his people. And he says, my father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, then may your will be done. There's a hymn that says Jesus Christ took that cup and he drank it to the dregs. The dregs are when you drink a cup of tea, it's those little pieces of tea that sit at the bottom. There's still a little potency. It says that he he savored the dregs until there was no power left. The cup that Jesus was referring to is the cup of God's wrath. God's wrath, the penalty that we deserve, the curse. And Gethsemane was just a taste of what would be poured out on Jesus on the cross. And yet he still grieved. It says that Jesus grieved to the point of death. He was overwhelmed to the point of death. Jesus Christ, the greater beauty, more humble, more powerful than Esther, the greater Esther, and yet more vulnerable, more killable, he died on the cross. He was killed on the cross. And on the cross, he became like Haman, hung on the gallows, impaled, pierced, as they gazed on the gallows, they saw the blood poured out. As the, as the Jews gazed and saw evil and the blood of evil being poured out, they knew that they were saved. As we look at the cross and see Christ's blood being poured out, we know that he received what we deserved. And we can trust that we received everything that he deserved. You know why? Galatians chapter 3. Jesus Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. In other words, Jesus Christ is on the cross. On one hand, he's saying God is just. And because God is just, he will not let a single sin go. He will destroy evil to the end. He will destroy injustice and oppression, sin. But on the other hand, God is loving. He will pay the price of that sin with his own life. And so he received the full wrath of God until he paid the price in full, in totality, so that we can have access, so that we can have the intimacy of God. God is loving because he is just. 
Otherwise, evil wins. If you even let one sin go, unpaid for, evil wins. God is just, and he is loving because he's just, but God is also just because he is living. Who will pay the price? He would pay the price once and for all. And Jesus Christ on the cross uses Satan's greatest weapon, death, to defeat death. The ultimate reversal. Jesus Christ dies, but through his brokenness, through his death, he defeats death. He overturns death. So that famous saying that death before used to be our executioner, now it's only a gardener in which springs forth new life. Adoring Jesus, who is vulnerable, who became killable and died, who emptied himself, identified with his people and their suffering to the point where he became the curse. He became sin. He identified with his people, loved his people to the point where he came down. This is the meaning of Christmas. It marks the end of saving ourselves, stepping over other people to get ahead. It marks the end of snobbishness towards certain types of people, relying on our own wealth and our intelligence and status and positions as a sense of worth in our lives because Jesus Christ, the most powerful, the highest person ever in the universe, sacrifices wealth and power and status and position for you, for the weak, for the vulnerable, to bring about the greatest reversal by taking our place. Surely we can demonstrate the little reversals in our own lives for the sake of other people if we gaze on the ultimate reversal accomplished for us. Surely that means you can forgive when called for. Surely that means you can be generous when called for. Surely that means that you can take someone else's place. Surely that means you can identify with other people, the lower, the people who are suffering, people who are oppressed. If you have a voice, surely that means we can commit even minor reversals. And notice Esther wasn't obnoxious. Esther wasn't arrogant. We don't go out there self-righteously, but we speak and we appeal and we petition and we make requests for those of us who have a voice. Because Jesus Christ not only spoke for us, but he died for us. Christmas, Christmas means that the greatest reversal has been accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross. It was a bloodshed of mercy. It was a bloodshed of grace. It was a bloodshed of new life for us. That is what will soften you. That is what will humble you. That is what will enable you to come down. That is what will enable you to trust the Lord, trust God, obey God. Whether you are in suffering or in anxiety or in trial or in a deep darkness, no matter where you are, see the radical grace that Jesus Christ demonstrated for us, beginning with his birth. That's why we celebrate. Then you can give with a radical grace. Oh, I have a hard time giving. Oh, I don't have much. Oh, I'm not that high up. I'm still really just beginning. You can give with a radical grace. You can surrender with a radical surrender. You can use your gifts with a radical grace for such a time as this. That's how we live as Christians in the world. 
friends, God is shaping you and transforming you, using you. He's working through your decisions every day, your actions every day, your circumstances by his word in Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit for his glory. Even when he seems silent, even when he seems totally absent, he is present. You know, Michael Jackson saying, will you be there in my trials, in my tribulations? Will you be there? We know. We have such great assurance. We can go to God. We can approach Jesus. We can adore Jesus. That's what Christmas is about. We can worship Jesus. That's the meaning of Christmas. Join us this week as we remember and look to and behold the beauty of Christ who was born. Let's pray.